warning, today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now podcast. I am your host, Rigor. In this series of special Then Is Now episodes, 13 Days of Hallowtober, we're exploring what are widely regarded as the scariest movies of all time. I am joined once again by podcaster and author Patrick Rahal, a.k.a. Patsy the Angry Nerd, who is host of the award-winning show Throwdown Thursday podcast, Shark Bites podcast, and The Loudest Sports Show, as well as author of How Much Do You Tip an Exorcist? a contributing author to More or Less from the Mythos, Volumes 1 and 2, and a contributing author to VHS Nightmares, coming out October 31st. Welcome back to the show, Pat. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, this is obviously uh, our subject matter today is uh, another one of my favorite movies, uh, probably 1 and 1A with uh, the one we talked about the other day. So I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to discuss this one. Yes. Yes, uh, this is. I think this show is going to go. It's going to run longer than we planned because there is just so much to talk about in this movie. It's um, it's so ingrained in the pop culture, and there's so much to discuss about it. Even though it's probably been talked to death over the years, and the film I'm referring to, of course, is the classic 1975 horror flick Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg and based on the novel by Peter Benchley. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week, and you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. Barracuda. 
Everybody says, huh? What? You yelled shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Is it true that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about 10 feet from the beach? Yeah. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. Bad fish. But I'll catch him and kill him. Did you hear your father out of the water now? This shark, swallow you whole. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons of them. Hold it up. He's coming straight for us. Don't screw it up now. Don't wait for me. Now! Shoot! fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. During a beach party at dusk on Amity Island, a young woman, Chrissy Watkins, goes skinny dipping in the ocean. While treading water, she is violently pulled under. The next day, her partial remains are found on shore. The medical examiner's ruling that the death was due to a shark attack leads police chief Martin Brody to close the beaches. Mayor Larry Vaughn overrules him, fearing that the town's summer economy will be ruined and points out that the town has never had trouble with sharks. The coroner now concurs with the mayor's theory that Chrissy was killed in a boating accident. Brody reluctantly accepts their conclusion until the shark kills both a pet dog and a young boy, Alex Kintner, in full daylight on a crowded beach. A bounty is placed on the shark, prompting an amateur shark hunting frenzy. Local professional shark hunter Quint offers his his services for $10,000. Meanwhile, consulting oceanographer Matt Hooper examines Chrissy's remains and confirms her death was caused by a shark, an unusually large one. Brody, Hooper, and Quint venture out in a boat to take on the immense killer shark and battle for their lives in the process. Now, truly, this is a man against nature flick. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so when did you first see this, and what was what's your first impression of it? Um, I remember seeing this as a young child, um, you know, like we discussed on the, uh, the episode with The Thing. Um, I had been exposed to uh, kind of behind-the-scenes stuff when it comes to scary monster special effects uh, through the making of thriller, uh, the Michael Jackson video, right. um, you know, we got to see, you know, this is how these things are made. So my parents were a little more lenient when it came to, you know, like seeing scary stuff. And plus they had seen it a thousand times themselves. So they were like, okay, you know, this is when it gets scary. Look away at this part. Uh, but I remember seeing it as a young child and, um, you know, I didn't remember a whole lot of it. But then I remember a few years later um, coming across the book and reading the book. And I was like, wow, this is 
not even remotely close to the same thing. Like the source material is so much different from the uh, the what we get on screen. Right, it is. Um, I I do think in this case, I know it's been busted by the MythBusters that if you shoot an air tank, it will not explode. You know, taking a little <laughs> bit of creative license, it's still much better than the ending of the book, which uh, is just is just awful. Uh, it's not a particularly well written book. Uh, there's a lot of weird subplots going on like you know the reason the beaches stay open is because uh larry vaughn owes money to the mafia because he was embezzling through like a real estate scam like that's right what like yeah that's that's unnecessary uh and and hooper and ellen brody having an affair yeah i was gonna say hooper hooper dies because brody could have helped him but like uh, you've been sleeping with my wife, so oh no, the shark got you. Oh, how sad. <laughs> <laughs> like he could have helped him, right? But he didn't. So <laughs> I'm not gonna kill you, but I don't have to save your life, <laughs> right? It's like oh, let me. Oh, I wish I could help you, but like oh man, oh this is so bad. <laughs> well, have fun getting eaten. Yeah, exactly. So I saw this at the tender age of five in 1975 when it was released. And it scared me so bad, I actually had trouble taking baths for like the next two years. I was terrified. And my parents had to be like, no, it's fine. There's no sharks in the tub. <laughs> See, my... And... Go what? Ahead, go, ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, um, you know, I've mentioned before in the show, my parents always took me to horror movies. So, And this was a big deal. I mean, this was the first of the real summer blockbusters. It it sort of broke the mold mm-hmm. for how movies would be released in the summer and it was just everywhere and I think you and I off off um show even talked about an old cracked magazine that was all about jaws and it was just in every corner of the pop culture. Yeah, it's one of those uh really iconic things where, you know, John Williams' score is you know, as soon as you hear that, like, it's got this sense of danger and foreboding. And um, watching the creature from the Black Lagoon, like, there are, uh, it's almost like an homage to the creature from the Black Lagoon, which makes sense because it's this unseen aquatic threat, you know, that's, right. you know, stalking all these people. Uh, what some people don't realize you know, like uh, there are a few people that know, like, okay, this is based on the the attacks on the Jersey Shore in 1916, and like, oh, it was a rogue shark. Well, further research has determined that it was not a rogue shark. There's no such thing as a rogue shark. Uh, it's generally multiple sharks, uh, because when there's a food source, it draws more than one. It's not just going to have one shark. Uh, right. And it wasn't a great white. It was a set of, uh, or, or a school of uh, bull sharks, because there was actually an attack upriver uh, around the same time, and bull sharks have a uh, special organ that stores salt in their body and cycles it through their uh, their entire system, so that they can spend an indefinite time in freshwater, and they went upstream and killed two people. It was like oh, a, it was like a nine-year-old kid, and he got attacked, and like it was just a bunch of people swimming in the in the river, you know, on a you know sunny afternoon, and somebody went to try and save him, and he got killed as well. Oh, good heavens! So 
that's you know it's great white is just one of those like they're very recognizable they're very um very uh distinct looking um, yeah you know and they are the the biggest of the uh you know apex predator sharks you know getting to be around 20 25 feet i think deep blue is the biggest one that they they uh, are aware of now and she's about 25 feet uh right I mean, whale sharks and basking sharks are bigger, but they don't have teeth. They have uh, their filter feeders. Right, right. Uh, so great white is just, oh, these, these are cool looking. They look scary. They look menacing. They've got like really cool coloration. I'm going to use this as the basis for my story. And eventually gives the shark uh, quite a bit of intelligence, um, you know, maybe like dolphin like yeah. intelligence in the uh right. in the book. <laughs> well, but, hey, wasn't it like Jaws 4 that it was the shark was coming back for revenge? Yes, because... Jaws for revenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've read all of the accompanying uh works so the Jaws 2 was like the mate of the first one. Um Yeah. And yes, that's right. The uh offspring is Jaws 4. Right, like Jaws 3D was just kind of, it's uh, it's almost like a non sequel because they kind of change things around with like who the characters are and it's weird uh, and I don't consider it canonical because it's uh, like I said they switch the characters around and make them completely different people and give them completely different backstories while using the same names. Right. It'd be like, you know, taking Friday the 13th and it's like, all right, well, this guy's name is Jason Voorhees, but uh, he's actually a paranormal investigator right. and, you know, he doesn't like hockey. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's just a completely different setup. Yeah, it, it's just mind boggling what Hollywood dreams up when they when they're trying to do this stuff. And there was a comedian that once was talking about the Jaws movies and he goes, you would think after the events of the second movie. And and then Brody dies, you know, off screen. Maybe she should move to Kansas, where there are no sharks. <laughs> yeah, very difficult to be attacked by a shark in the uh, in a landlocked state. Like you have right. to really try. It's like you know, I I have no sympathy for anyone who's ever been hit by a train because it's not like the train can come get you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like if you put yourself in that situation. Which is, you know, one of the things Benchley said, you know, he was very, he said if he had known what would happen uh, as far as like the, the shark hunting community that sprang up as a result of this, uh, he never would have written the book because, you know, oh. everyone's like, oh, you know, sharks are so dangerous, they're so dangerous. Sharks kill an average of seven people a year while people kill a hundred million sharks a year. Right. And the people that get killed are in the shark's living room, you know, and the right. shark, you know, people go into like, there's no one like, Oh, I got jumped by a shark in the Walmart parking lot. Like that doesn't happen. Like I had to right. defend myself. <laughs> you know, I, land for, shark. I forget who it was. Yeah. Land shark, Chevy chase. <laughs> I, I forget who, who said it, but someone was like, if you're, you know, a shark sees a person, you know, and, they go after them. And, um, you know, if a bucket of fried chicken skateboarded across your living room, like what would you do? <laughs> it's the same thing. But I will say this because I am, 
I am a shark enthusiast and I am also uh, a shark advocate. The reason why, you know, there's this myth of, well, sharks don't even like the taste of humans. They just think that you're right. a seal. That's that. not entirely accurate. Oh, really? So sharks do not have uh, hands. Like if you're trying to inspect something and you're not sure what it is, the first thing you do is you pick it up and you look at it. Like if someone has right. like a piece of memorabilia, you pick it up, you look at it. Oh, this is nice. You hold it in front of yourself. Well, with a shark, the way it investigates something is by biting it. That's where its oh, okay. uh, tactile sensation is located. And it will bite on something to determine if this is something, A, it can eat, and B, it's worth eating. Sharks okay. do not eat as much as people think. They do eat nonstop because uh, they have a very high metabolism. They would prefer to eat a seal over a person because seals have uh, you know, all the, the layer of fat and blubber, and that takes a longer time to digest, which gives the shark a steady caloric boost that allows it to continue swimming because most sharks, uh, they do not have what's called a swim bladder like a fish can have and kind of hover. They can't swim backwards. They can't stop. Uh, they have to right, continually they have to move. Keep Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think they'll suffocate if they don't. Correct. Yeah. Because they have to have their mouth open and uh, they filter the, the water and the oxygen through their gills. So right. it's, it's uh, so when they go to bite something, they're really investigating it. And the reason that like they'll take a bite out of a person, well, it, it's a risk reward thing. You know, if they bite a person and they determine that yeah, it's yelling and screaming and flailing around and hitting me. There's not enough, uh, you know. I'm going to use more energy than I'm going to get from eating this because it, if it's able to take a bite and just sink its teeth straight through, uh, it can tell that there's not enough fat on the person. Doesn't matter who it is, you know. I mean, like you could be talking yeah. the fattest person in the world. It's not. It's going to take a bite and be like, nope, this is not. This is not going to sustain me. I'm going to have to eat right. again in 10 minutes because I uh, I've expended so much energy stalking, killing this thing. And that's the other thing people don't realize about great whites, that they are ambush predators. That's um, why you see on the, the Discovery Channel so many of these uh, videos of sharks leaping out of the water because they swim low. They... Uh, they use the uh, ampullae of Lorenzini, which is their receptors in the, their snout in the front of their face, to uh, detect the electrical signals of um, fish moving or you know any any animal moving around in the in the water. And right. they charge from the bottom, which is why they uh, evolutionarily they have evolved so that if you are looking up from beneath them, you are seeing you know the white underbelly that blends in with the uh, sky and the, 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 the sea above it. If you're okay, looking down, it's dark gray on the top, so it blends in, so it's uh, camouflage. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. Rocket themselves straight up because they're they're pretty fast. They're not as fast as Mako's, but they're pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, and they have that pointed snout which indicates that they are um you know, streamlined for speed, at least short, short bursts of speed. And uh, that's what they use to ram into their their prey. 
And when they eat, they store it for quite a while. They are they're they're living off it for quite a while. They don't really like in Jaws too. I think that shark ate like five or six people, and even if they were to eat a whole person, I think one would be more than enough to last them for a while. Correct? Probably not, uh, because again, you know, if you look at the amount of energy it takes to eat Chrissy Watkins at the beginning, uh, the amount of fat that is on her body is not going to, especially with her. She was a rather skinny young lady, uh, right? It's not going to, uh, he's going to be able to digest her quicker than if you were to be, say, uh, you know, a seal half her size. Because, I mean, even a seal that's, you know, four feet long is going to weigh 300 pounds, you know, because they're oh, mostly muscle and, you know, the big layer of fat. Like, that's the that's the thing. Like, the muscle is fine, uh, but it's the fat layer that takes so long to break down and provides them with that steady stream of energy. That's what they're yeah. looking for. That's why they go after like the whales. Like sharks are cannibalistic; they're opportunistic uh, uh, eaters, especially like a tiger shark or a bull shark. They will eat anything that comes into their path. Um, a what? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, tiger shark. Um, the, yeah, the, uh, the 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 way these animals hunt. Uh, it's like there was a whole thing, you know, that contributed to them be, getting this. Uh, and we even get to see a little bit of it in Jaws when they're showing the cage in the water and we see the actual footage of the shark, you know, attacking the cage and swimming and flipping around. Scientists found out that the reason sharks were attacking cages that way is because of the metallic composition of the cage. Once they switched to different alloys, it gave different uh, electric signals because that's what sharks hunt with, you know, your oh. heartbeat gives off an electric signal. If you're moving around right. a certain way, it disturbs the water and, you know, sharks can, can you know, hone in on that. You know, a person right. swimming, you know, a shark can't differentiate that between, you know, a, a person swimming or a seal swimming. Their eyesight That's is fairly good. But, you know, it was the, the fact that the, the, I forget the name of the metal too, and I should have, I should have grabbed that. But it was a specific composition or alloy of steel that was causing the sharks to kind of frenzy because the shark didn't know what it was and it would attack it in, in you know on instinct. Once they switch that, now you have these shark dives where the, the shark will just kind of glide by the cage. It might investigate it because it's getting a faint signal, but like you know maybe it'll it'll take a bite out of something. But it's like okay, this isn't something I can eat. I'm just gonna swim around. Right, right. And I heard that Spielberg said that that's the reason. He had acquired the footage of, of, I think it was from somebody in Australia, of the shark attacking an empty cage, and that's why Hooper ended up living in the movie, which originally they were going to kill him, and then he wanted to use that footage, so uh, it ended up sparing Hooper's life, the character. Yeah, because uh, it happens very similar in the in the book, where you know the shark rams into the cage, but Hooper's not able to get out and hide. Uh the shark, you know, gets him when it rams its snout into the into the cage. It crushes him and then eats him. And again, Brody could have lifted the cage up out of the water, but was like, eh, you hooked up with my wife. And right. the reason she hooked up with him is because she dated his brother in high school or something along those lines. Or she's like, oh, yeah, I dated him in high school. Or, you know, he looks like a guy that I dated in high school. No, I think it was his brother. I think she dated his uh, Hooper's brother in high school 
and that's why she hooked up with him. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, not that's again superfluous, unnecessary. Exactly, exactly. I'm glad they excised it from the final uh, film version. Now, uh, speaking of the film, of course, I- I've seen this movie hundreds of times mm-hmm. over the years. I've just seen it so many times I can quote it back and forth. In fact, um, I think I even told you this recently. Uh, we before we moved into the house we're currently living in, we took all the kids to a cinema pub to watch Jaws because my kids had seen it, but hers had not. And at the end of the movie, my wife's oldest son turns to me. He goes, now I understand half of what you say <laughs> because of the quotes. All the references I wanted, make. Yeah. And in preparing for the show, I, I was like this morning I, or last night I thought about it. I'm like, all right, tomorrow morning I'm going to get up and I'm going to watch it with the director's commentary because I've never actually watched that version before. And come to find out, I own the 30th anniversary DVD. I own the Blu-ray. I even have a Laserdisc, which I think has commentary on it, but I don't have a, a working Laserdisc player. But neither the Blu-ray nor the DVD had any commentary. They had a making of, but they didn't have any commentary. And I was I was kind of disappointed at that. Have you seen a version with commentary? Um, potentially the 45th version, which I have across the room. Um, I can give me a second. Let me take a look. Sure. All right, so let's see. Bonus features. The shark is still working. The impact and legacy of Jaws. Making of Jaws. Jaws the restoration. Deleted scenes and outtakes. Uh, storyboards. Origi- no, it doesn't look like... Yeah, not even on the 40... Maybe in five years when we get the 50th anniversary. Huh. That's interesting. So, anyways, um, before we actually dive in and talk, you know, and, and break this film apart, I wanted to just quickly go over the cast and crew. Thankfully, unlike when we did the thing, it had a huge cast. This there aren't many people, so it won't take that long to get through. And of course, we'll start with the director Steven Spielberg. I mean, what can we say? E.T., Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, nineteen forty-one, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I do remember um, his early movie which actually he compared to Jaws when he was first going to do Jaws, it was a TV movie called Duel with mm. Dennis Weaver about this monster um, uh, Mack truck that's menacing people on the, on the highway in the, in the desert, and Dennis Weaver is this hapless you know, sal- salesman that ends up becoming the victim of this guy, and the whole movie is sort of a battle between him and this truck. But um, what do you get to say about Spielberg? How, how, how was your recollection of him from when you first knew who he was? Um, I remember knowing who he was because he did Jaws, I remember um, I had seen Duel because my dad had spoken very highly of it. He's like, oh, you got to see it. It's got Dennis Weaver in it. And I'm like, I'm eight. I don't know who that is. Um, <laughs> it's McLeod. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, that guy. Um, but uh, he spoke highly of it, so I watched it. And I, I really did like it, like that relentless pursuit. Like I definitely could see the uh, comparison between Jaws and Duel. Um, especially the, uh, the escape at the end, you know, it's, it mirrors yeah. very closely like Brody. It's like, okay, now I have to get back somehow to civilization and my mode of transportation is gone. So I have to make it under my own power, which I thought was, uh, interesting. And I actually hadn't thought of that until you had just brought it up, but it's like, yeah, like these are very similar movies. Like, yes, uh, I, I like it a lot. And they kind of did a remake uh, about 20 years ago called Joyride with uh, Paul Walker and uh, 
uh, Ted Levine as the voice of the truck driver. Ted Levine, oh, interesting. of course, I never saw being that. Uh, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Right. Uh, I never saw that. Yeah, it's out. I mean, it wasn't a great movie, but it was it was interesting, and it was kind of like you know uh, a different take on that movie, but you know, with uh, late nineties, early two thousands, like you know, excessive gore and and you know, uh, unnecessary. You know, the unnecessary remake uh, quality right. of, that, of those <laughs> those films and that that era, um, and the fact that the that duel didn't have a lot of gore and it, it's an a testament to Spielberg's storytelling ability. He doesn't he doesn't need to be exploitative in his movies in order to tell a good story that almost everybody will like. Right. I mean, there's not a whole lot uh, in Jaws. I mean, you know, I go back and I like to nitpick things in movies. There's really one scene that I have an issue with. There's only one, and it's one thing, and uh, uh, I can save it if you want while we're talking about the film, or I can I can discuss sure. it now either way. But uh, no, Go ahead. All right. Uh, it's the scene where Hooper takes the tooth out of Ben Gardner's boat. Yeah. Because the tooth is wedged into the wood point up, and that is not how a shark is going to bite into something. If anything, it would have been point down. Maybe down, they couldn't get exactly. it to, to stay that way. But like, that's the thing that's always bugged me about that. It's like, how did that tooth <laughs> get wedged in there? Unless it was planted. Maybe somebody, like right. there's a theory that uh, Quint killed Ben Gardner and stuck the tooth in there. But even Quint would know better than that. Like, right. <sighs> and why was Ben Gardner missing an eye? I mean, if the shark was going to bite him in the face, it would have bit his whole head off or half his head off. You know, I'm thinking. I'm thinking it was probably you know like fish and stuff getting at him. Fish. Oh, and that's crabs true. Yeah, could be. yeah. That scene. I, I, all right. Well, I will talk about that scene a little bit because. Uh, there's a couple of things. One is I had heard that uh, Spielberg shot that in his pool at the last minute because he figured they needed one more scare for the film. I had and heard that, so, yeah. Yeah, so they went ahead and did that. They had, a, I think they had a little bit, of, although they were over budget, so I don't know how they could have had a little extra money. But when we saw that in the theater, uh, mind you, it, it was such an experience seeing this movie with people screaming throughout the film. When that head popped out, in fact, this morning I watched it. My three-year-old grandson like was watching it with me, or he was just you know getting ready for school, and he jumped when the head popped out. My mother jumped. I mean, we all did in the theater. She jumped so hard that she was holding a bucket of popcorn, and it went up in the air and all over the guy in front of us. It was hilarious, and that was that was how movies were back then. You don't really, even though you have scary movies these days, you don't have those kind of real visceral scares where the whole audience is screaming all at once. Well, it's because everybody expects it now. Like every time there's something like that, because um, they'll definitely cue it up with the, uh, I kind of think of it as uh, Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, where so many times like they'll cue it up with the music 
and the music will start to build to this crescendo and then like the person will look down the hallway and there's nothing there it's like oh okay and then they'll turn around the other way and there's the thing you know then you know the the killer stabs them or there's a ghost there or the monster's there it's like oh it's yeah. almost like it's letting you into that false sense of security it's like oh you're we're building up we're building up here's something scary nope just kidding oh there it right. was anyways like oh <laughs> yeah. it's lucy they with the football they actually did that in the descent in the descent, there's a scene where the the you think something's around the corner, and then you're like, "Oh, thank God, there's nothing there." And a split second later, something happens, and it was just yep. like, "Oh, it worked." Yep, <laughs> made me jump. Well, I mean, with the descent, I think it was it's a little different because of the atmosphere that you're in. When you're in an atmosphere of isolation and and solitude, um, you know, again, like we talked about with the thing or alien or the abyss. Like when you're facing an enemy or, uh, you know, some sort of uh, malevolent force, be it supernatural, human, animal, what have you, um, and you are in an area where you know no one's going to help you because no one can. Um, right. That, I think, ratchets up the terror and where, you know, the descent takes place in this dark cave, you know, yeah. in you know, these tight spaces, like you feel the claustrophobia of some of these characters, like when they're trying to wriggle through the the little narrow openings and they can't oh. put their arms next to each other and then like you see something run in the background and you're like oh my god like like i yeah. would get kind of claustrophobic about stuff like that right and that that is one of the movies we're going to be discussing on uh, uh 13 days of hallowtober so let's get back to the cast here now we've got roy scheider who plays Chief Brody, and he's another actor that I, I love his movies. He was in Sorcerer, Blue Thunder, All That Jazz, 52 Pickup, 2010, the sequel to 2001. Mm -hmm. He also had a small part in The Punisher, and he was the lead in um, a TV show that wasn't all that good. It was a sci-fi TV show called Sequest DSV. Yes. Uh, but I did watch that just because he was in it. But With Jonathan very... Brandis and the uh, Talking Dolphin or something. There was That's a... right. Yeah. <laughs> but he's another actor that we're going to have to do a whole future show on. But in my mind, Jaws, it, it's Brody's character arc. is is His story is the through line for the film. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. I... Yeah. He, it's, you know, he's this guy from New York who's terrified of the water, ends up taking a position as sheriff on an island off the coast. of It was an island, right? Yeah. Amity Island Amity off Island, the coast yeah. of Massachusetts. Amity, as you know, means friendship. Yes. And uh, and it, it even people are laughing at him that he's he's afraid of the war. We heard about you. You're you're the guy that doesn't go in the water. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, there's a few different uh, thoughts on that. Uh, one of the theories is that um, there was some kind of accident that uh, you know he presided over. Um. Like a like a drunk driving accident, you know, a la Chappaquiddick. Oh, geez. Uh, and that's why, like, he's an alcoholic, but, you know, something happened. And instead of him, like, losing his job or having to resign in disgrace, they kind of just, here, let's send you over here where you can't cause any trouble. This small little town. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And he has to overcome that fear in order to to get into the boat and go after the shark, even though he it's goes against his better nature. Yeah. Like he's doing it because, you know, his duty, uh, his sense of duty is stronger than his, uh, fear. 
Yes. Plus, he can Absolutely. drink, all especially with well, that. Yeah, that, and um, especially when when Michael is almost uh, attacked by the shark, which we will talk about later. But um, it's it's personal for him as well. It's he's not just protecting the community; his family is in danger. Right, and it, it's personal, and I think that that's a theory a theme that runs through the rest of the the films. Like it's a it's a personal thing. It's almost like a a, a shark vendetta. Yeah, exactly. And so we've also got Richard Dreyfus as Matt Hooper, another actor with an amazing career, very prolific. Um, I remember in film uh, when I studied film in college, we watched The Graduate, and I saw his first scene where he was a, he had a cameo in it. Did you see The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman? A long a long time ago, I don't I don't recall his his cameo in it to be honest. With you. Okay, so there's a scene towards the beginning where there's some kind of a scuffle going on in like the boys' dormitory. And a bunch of guys are in this doorway looking in to see what's going on. And Richard Dreyfus comes up from the back. He pokes his head and he goes, you want me to call the cops? I'm going to call the cops. And then he takes off and that, that's it. That's all you see him in the movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that scene. But yeah, yeah, it, it definitely seems like something he would do. Um, I was a little bummed. I was uh, going to go to Rhode Island Comic Con last year, but I just, I was under the weather. And uh, I was going to get him to sign... Because he, he was only charging $60 for an autograph, which is unheard of. But I was going to get him to sign my uh, Matt Hooper Funko Pop. Because I have oh, all of the cool. Jaws Funko Pops, including the nice. Bloody Quint variant. Nice. <laughs> you know, one of the bloopers they showed was um, on, the, on the video was Quint getting eaten by the shark. And he's laying on the boat while the shark's biting him. And he's screaming in agony. And he spits the blood out. And it goes right up into his eye and just covers his his left eye completely, and the crew just starts cracking up laughing. Yeah, like they um, they did the two different shots, and like that's the one. Like it was excessive blood; like they thought it was too much. See, and yeah, that's one of those things that uh, again is kind of a pet peeve of mine in a movie where no matter what happens to someone, blood comes out of their mouth. It made sense right. in this context because he was having his organs crushed, and yes, it's going to spew out of your mouth. But it's like, right. oh, this guy got shot in the shoulder, and now he's spitting blood. Oh, he got his leg cut <laughs> off, and he's spitting blood. It's like, why? Like, I get that it's a scary visual, but shouldn't it make sense? Right. You know I mean? <laughs> like, One thing I learned when I was studying film in school, too, was that um, if you see blood, if someone's coughing in a movie or you see blood coming out of their mouth, they're going to die. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of reasons why, at least in older films, if someone's got blood coming out of, out of their mouth, chances are the character's going to expire pretty soon. Nowadays, they don't really follow any rules, so it's hard to tell. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. Like, like it seems like sometimes uh, you know some of these things are done just for the shock value of having that happen, like you know, showing a compound fracture and then, you know, it's like, oh, you know, my leg, you know, the, the bone sticking out of my leg. Well, I guess I got to run from the monster now and I have a slight limp. It's like, don't, yeah. no, you don't. No, you, you, you don't. You are not. Right. You're not putting any weight uh, on. on that. Right. Exactly. So Dreyfus, of course, has, again, been in numerous films. And I'll just mention a couple here. American Graffiti. Close Encounters, Mr. Holland's Opus, What About Bob, 
the the list just keeps going on and on. I think he's he's a, won awards and stuff for um, especially I think Mr. Holland's Opus. Yes. Um, but two of my favorite roles that he's done was of course What About Bob as he's the psychiatrist that is just um, beleaguered by Bill Murray's character Bob, mm-hmm. and it, it, hilarious is his reactions are so hilarious in that movie, and um, also Close Encounters. I, that movie as a kid terrified me and i know it's not a scary movie it's a science fiction film but for some reason maybe because of the little boy in the film and seeing the aliens whatever i couldn't even look at anything to do with that movie for years i had trading cards on close encounters and i i hid them away i I still have them but i i had hidden them away because i just couldn't bear to look at anything to do with that film for some reason it disturbed me but i'll never forget his performance in that way he's making the uh, the the mashed potatoes. He's turning his mashed potatoes into Devil's Tower. This means something, you know. I think that's that's another iconic thing that's gone into the pop culture. Yeah. Speaking of uh, that being uh, in pop culture, there's a, a reference to it on The Simpsons where uh, Homer ends up going to clown college, and he's he's driving through. Uh, it's the first of the month, and it's New Billboard Day, and he's very excited. And he's driving down the street, <laughs> and you know, it's like there's a science like this year, give her English muffins, you know, and it's like a guy presenting English muffins to his wife for their anniversary. <laughs> and like he's seeing all these different things. And then it's like, you know, Krusty's Clown College he goes Clown College. You can't eat that. And he comes home and every he had gone shopping and he has everything that he saw on the on the billboards. He goes that Clown College thing, you know, didn't get to me at all. But like he keeps having visions of clowns. Like there's one he sees them like cavorting and capering in his office at the <laughs> nuclear plant, but it's actually guys that are on fire trying to roll around and put the fire out. And then he's at home and he's making a circus tent out of mashed potatoes. And Lisa looks at Marge and goes, Mom? And Marge is like, I think I'll have some wine. <laughs> like, it's such awesome. a great scene. And like if you haven't seen Close Encounters, you can still enjoy it. But if you've seen Close Encounters, you're like, okay, that's way better. I, I get that reference. <laughs> yeah. Um, they also um, spoofed it in the movie UHF with Weird Al. Yes. Where he was doing the same thing with his mashed potatoes. Yep. Not listening to a word his girlfriend is saying as he's looking at it going, this means something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That. Uh, but uh, to kind of touch on uh, one thing you said about the, the aliens being scary, uh I can totally relate to that. Uh, my dad showed me a film when I was uh, seven, and it was called UFOs Are Real. And oh. it freaked me out. Like, I love that paranormal stuff. Like, I'm a firm yeah, believer too. in aliens. Like, I love reading about it. Uh, but there was a scene where it was almost like a jump scare, to me anyways, where on the screen flashed a picture of a gray alien and my entire body just shut down. I fell off the couch and I crawled out of the room on my hands and knees. My entire body felt like it was like on pins and needles. Oh, I was so terrified. I've never been more scared in my life. Wow. And I crawled out of the room on my hands and knees. And I was like, I nope, nope, no. It was like, you know, when your foot falls asleep. <laughs> no, thank you. But my entire body felt like that. And it was instantaneous. And I've had oh people tell me, like, maybe you had an experience when you were younger. And I do recall <laughs> at one point, I was about three years old, 
and I still remember the exact sound. Someone called my name from outside of my room. Hmm. My room was on the second floor, and it was just outside my window, and it freaked me out. And I remember being very scared, but I was able to get up and go ask my mom, did you just call me? No. I go and I ask my dad, did you just call me? He's like, no. I'm like, well, somebody was calling me, and they were outside my window. Wow. And it was like, I still remember the way they called my name. That's freaky. Whoever it was, whatever it was, but maybe those two things are connected. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I want to know. But right. <laughs> I can totally commiserate with your fear of the aliens in Close Encounters. <laughs> Oh my God, we're gonna have to do a show on that. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I I have one, but I'll save it for for that show because um I don't want to go too off on a tangent here. So let's move on to Robert Shaw, who played Quint. Of course, he's a British actor. He died very young at age fifty one. He was known for being in The Sting, from Russia with Love, The Deep, and I remember him from Force Ten from Navarone, which he was really good in that. And he was just a very serious guy, serious actor, but he. He always gave 100% to every role he was in, and Quint is is the same. I mean, he you totally believe his character to the point where he starts to become unhinged, and, you know, he, he almost has this Ahab-like ex- obsession with, with, finding, with killing the shark. Yeah, and um, that's, I mean, that's really the, uh, the, the analog for his character because... That's how he dies in the book. Uh, the shark doesn't bite him and you know crush him. The his foot gets tangled up in the harpoon rope, the exact same way that Ahab dies, and he gets drowned, dragged to his death, and drowned. Oh, okay. I saw an interview with Spielberg, and he wanted to have a scene. I guess Benchley had given him the script and said, "Here, do with it what you will." And so Spielberg rewrote the whole script. It ended up not getting used, but some of the scenes ended up in it. But one of the ones he wanted to use, or one of the scenes he wanted to use from his own script, was the first time we see Quint, instead of him just riding by on the boat, watching it, the chaos that's going on, he's in a movie theater watching Moby Dick with Gregory Peck, and he's laughing. He's just laughing so hard through the movie that eventually everyone gets up and leaves, everyone in the audience, and he's the only one in the theater sitting there laughing, watching the film Moby Dick. I had heard something like that, and the, obviously the first thing that comes into my mind, and you know maybe yours as well, is uh, Cape Fear. Yes, the original. Yeah. Although, yeah, I, 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 I could go on about the, the remake of Cape Fear and how much I didn't like it, but yeah, the, the original where he's just doing the exact same thing, and I wonder if that's where Spielberg got it from. I mean, it's entirely possible. Like, you know, the, the, with uh, a lot of art... Um, you know, whether it's, you know, film or books, you know, you're always going to draw on some inspiration, something that means something to you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you, you uh, heard my in my Andre Gower interview that one of the stories I wrote was influenced by uh, the Monster Squad. Yes. So, I mean, you always put like little things that inspire you. It's almost as a way of paying homage to them it's like hey you know i really you know it's a subtle way of it's almost like waving to the camera or winking to the camera but like you know you're winking to the reader as you uh, put out these uh these little these little nods it's like you know maybe it's a conversation that you had with someone or maybe it's a a specific 
thing that just struck you the right way and you're like you know again it's a, a wink and a nod to the camera like yeah i see you just you know don't don't forget that i uh you know you you meant something to me or this this means something to me you know there's there's all right. kinds of you could point a, a thousand different things and see that but yeah oh yeah and i i definitely think it was good that spielberg did not shoot that scene because well he still pays homage to that through the character's actions and i it's it's evident when you're watching it that he's just got that ahab zeal to him and i think that works better because it's subtler it it would be so much more over if he's literally laughing at moby dick and then we see him as he progresses as a character through the rest of the film yeah because he starts off very rational you know we see him at the at the you know, on the boat watching all these other yahoos like fishing with dynamite and he's just kind of like, yeah, you know, whatever, you know, if that's how you're going to go about it, eh, that's fine. And then you see right. him, you know, uh, in, you know, in his home and he's, he's got the, the, you know, the, the different jaws boiling and, you know, he's clearly good at catching sharks, you know, like that's very obvious, but he's also, you know, very old school when it comes to, uh, you know what he uh, what he believes in and how his actions drive him. Um, right. But we get to see that slow descent into madness, which is uh, just a testament to how good Shaw was in this role. Where you know when they're they're towing the shark, and they're like, "Oh, I got a taxidermy man back home. He's gonna have a heart attack when he sees what I brought him." You know, and yeah, yeah. And then he's like, oh, we can't go under, not with three barrels, not with three. And he's like, just not with three. Yeah. He's just getting vexed <laughs> by this. Like everything he knows how to do, all his tips and tricks and everything that he's ever done. Um, yeah. Isn't working. It's not working. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's a it's a brilliant, brilliant performance. And fun fact, we did uh, we did an episode on on Quint. And we learned oh, nice. that his first name is Marion. Marion Quint. <laughs> wow. That is a fun... Hey, John Wayne's real name was Marion Michael Morrison, so... Yeah. And it's just a, <laughs> just a fun trivia fact that most people do not know. Marion Quint. You know, whenever I hear things like that, it always makes me think of that line from Cobra starring Stallone, where he... he his name, I think his name was Marion in that. Marion Cobretti. And he's tell, yeah, and he's telling this lady, I always wanted a tougher name. She's like, what? She goes, like what? And he goes, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Alice Cooper. Right, Alice Cooper. So, all right, so we've got Lorraine Gary, who plays Ellen Brody. She did a handful of movies and TV shows, and she is still with us. But sadly, her last film was Jaws the Revenge in 87. But her performance here more than makes up for that because she's real rock solid as Brody's supportive wife and, you know, mother of her of the kids. And she doesn't do a whole heck of a lot in the movie in terms of fighting the shark. But I think um, she's what Brody's fighting for. And I think she plays that very well to to make us believe that he would, you know, that that she's his rock. Yeah, um, I I enjoy the dynamic that they have. You know, her watching uh, Brody and uh, and his son, uh, Sean, when they're making faces at each other. And then you yep. get to see that uh, that flashback in Jaws the Revenge. 
which I thought was right. Which, which was, was nice. it was wasn't it that um, Christopher Guest was the kid older and he was doing the same thing with another kid? Yeah, like you you get to yeah, and she starts having like the flashbacks of uh, of because uh, she was watching them with uh, the what the hell was her name Thea, uh, Michael and right. Thea, and she started having flashbacks of you know. Sean and 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 uh, I why am I why am I blanking on his name? I keep wanting to call him Tom, but that's Brady, not Brody. <laughs> wow, I don't remember Jaws four. I haven't seen in I think. No, no, I'm, I'm trying favorite. to remember uh, Chief Brody's first name. I'm totally blanking on Chief. Oh, Brody's Martin, first Martin name. Brody. Martin, yes, Jesus, Martin. Oh my God, like. <laughs> Oh yeah, that was that was driving me. I'm like, why can I not remember his name? I hate that. I hate. Oh, I was I was trying to write my notes for this, and I'm like, Lorraine Gary played uh, Ellen. Uh, it took me forever to remember Ellen Brody, and I was not gonna look it up. <laughs> yeah, like I remembered Ellen Brody right away, but I couldn't remember Martin. Like, <laughs> like how do I not remember his name? I think it, I think it's something that people like us have in common because I work I work with people that I've worked with for three years now. I'll pass them in the hallway and they'll say hi, Roger, and I'm like, hey, you, hey, <laughs> I have chief. no idea what the hell their name is, but I can remember Ellen Brody and Lorraine Gary and Murray Hamilton and all those people. Yep, yeah, Larry Vaughn. So speaking of Murray Hamilton, he plays Vaughn, the mayor. Yep, like you said, Larry Vaughn. This guy. Been in a ridiculous amount of movies and TV shows, including Spielberg's 1941. He also was in The Graduate. And, of course, uh, I think he played a priest in the Amityville Horror. And he just does a great job in this movie as the mayor who is more concerned with keeping the beach open than he is people dying from shark attack. Well, I mean, if the uh, past few years political climate has taught you anything, that uh, profits over people is definitely the way to go for politicians. And he's got to run a hell of a campaign because somehow he is still mayor in Jaws 2. And, right. you know, usually in the in the movies, it's the idiots that are just like, oh, well, they said there's a shark, but there's no way there's a shark. That's just propaganda, man. And, again, right. the political climate has taught us anything, that you can have facts staring you right in the face. And we see that in Jaws 2. Brody's like, hey, look, here's a picture of a shark. They're like... Ah, that's probably some coral. There's nothing to worry about. Everything's fine. It's like, do you remember what just happened? Like, this wasn't that long ago. Do you recall? Like, remember I was right about that Quint Hooper exploding shark? You know, Pippet. Did you forget about Pippet? Oh well, even in the the, the scene with Murray in, in the um in the movie where they're trying to explain to him, well, yeah, Hooper found a tooth in in the boat and he's like well where is the tooth oh well it, it fell oh so there's no tooth so there's no proof you know it's like if these people these characters don't have proof right in front of their faces they forget it they they don't care and even you know it, it still took some convincing after alex kittner was killed <laughs> like right in the middle of all of that it's like Sign the paper. We'll hire Quint. Sign the paper. He's like, well, you know, what if, uh, what if, uh, it's like, no, 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 no. Sign the goddamn paper. We'll return to 13 Days of Hallowtober 
after these messages. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Hey folks. I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts, podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodServe's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one -on -one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. 
Check them out. podcast featuring all your favorite monsters you won't believe your ears when you listen to monster kid radio here are your host derek m cook and his ever rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not so classic monster movies subscribe to monster kid radio through itunes or stitcher or visit MonsterKidRadio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. So then um, the guy that plays... Uh, Vaughn's sidekick, Harry Meadows, is Carl Gottlieb. Yes. Who, he's a pretty prolific screenwriter. He wrote um, all three Jaws movies. And he was, um, in the in the book, his character was a reporter, but he had a much larger role in the movie. And um, he, I think, like I said, I think he was the mayor's sidekick, wasn't he? Uh, or assistant? Something like that. I know... Um... Gottlieb was the uh, the reporter on the on the beach, was he not? Oh, okay. All right, I'm confusing things. Then I thought he was, I thought he was the guy in the blue suit standing with the mayor when they were on the little um, uh, little transport boat to go from you know one place to another, and they're talking to Brody, and Brody's telling them they're going to close the beach, and the mayor's saying no, we're not. And, and the doctor even steps up. He's in the background, and he goes, "Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It, it yes, yeah. Shot. You're right. I'm conv- uh, Peter Benchley was the um, the re- the reporter. Yeah, Carl right, Carl yeah. Gottlieb was uh, Meadows, and Peter Benchley was yes. the reporter on the beach. Right. Which the, that's what I was trying to get at was that Meadows was a reporter in the book, yeah. but he's not in the movie. Do you want to hear a fun uh, uh, Alex Kittner story? Like this is this sure. is one of the coolest things. So, uh, <laughs> Lee Fierro, who played his mother goes into a deli one day and she's like, she's like, Oh, you know, look at that sandwich. It's called the Alex Kittner. She goes, I was actually, I played his mom in jaws and the guy working behind the deli goes, that was me. I'm Jeffrey Voorhees. Oh my God. And they hadn't seen each other since the movie. (laughs) Wow. I was like, that's such a cool story. That is cool. That's amazing. So, yeah. Oh wow! Uh, Lee Fierro is Mrs. Kittner. That's another one though that I used. I the line I, I used to use in the past, like you know, I don't know for whatever reason, you know, we don't want to see the little Kittner boy spill out all over the kitchen floor. Yeah, you know, <laughs> carving a turkey or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then, lastly, I'm just going to talk about real quick Susan Backline or Backliney, who played Chrissy, who gets killed at the beginning. 
but she was also in 1941. So we've got, a, you know, here we have another director who's using actors mm-hmm. that he knows are solid and continues to work with them. She was also in the Muppet movies, and she was in a movie that I enjoy immensely. It's a it's a B horror movie called Day of the Animals, and I think that's just a fun, fun movie. And Leslie Nielsen is in it. In the, and it's hard to watch Leslie Nielsen movies now because he's been so closely associated with his comedic roles. But he plays a, a real serious role in this and starts to go crazy himself in the film and descends into madness. Very nice. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Yeah. I will say though, oh, I highly recommend it. She's another one whose character was a you know, drastic change from the book. Because in the book, her name was Christy. Oh. <laughs> Huge change. I don't know why. Bunch of suits around a table had to change that. It's like, I, it's like, oh, I can't call her Christy. That ruins my entire plot. How about Chrissy? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's way better. It's like, what? Right. Why that change? Like, And if I remember correctly in the book... When the shark bites her the first time, their teeth are, or at least it's portrayed as because his teeth are so razor sharp that she just feels something slide past her leg. And she's like, oh, what the hell is that? And she reaches down and feels Nothing. the stump. Yeah. 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 Um, she actually, in, I the, guess she can't really... in the movie, oh, she broke her, uh, her ribs getting jostled around like that. Oh, geez. I didn't know that. Yeah. Like so, she's in actual pain, and those screams are real pain—you know, screams of pain—because wow. she got all jacked and, up. And that whole scene of her being, you know, moved back and forth in the water where the shark is underneath is just so iconic, and it's just one of many. I mean, there are so many scenes and lines of dialogue in this movie that are, are have just become iconic, and they're out there and have been in the pop culture for for decades now. Yeah, it's. You know, there's so much of the, like, you're going to need a bigger boat. Like, uh, right. Smile, you son of a bitch. Like, and that brings me to, um, well, um, I'll mention that other one at a later point. But with the, with the bigger boat line, I guess when Spielberg showed it to the first test audience, they were still screaming because the shark had appeared, you know, come up out of the water behind uh, where Brody was throwing the chum out. Yeah that they didn't hear the line. So Spielberg actually went back to the film and cranked that line up so you could hear it or or did something. I don't know if maybe he changed the editing a little bit so that the line was more prevalent. Yeah, because it's like, yeah, straight ahead. I can go, you know, straight uh, steady ahead, you know, and I come back here, chum some of this shit, and then, like, the shark pops up, and he just like, whoa. And he just, like, walks (laughs) backwards. And he's still got the cigarette in his mouth, and I was... Uh, on a recent viewing, I was um, almost expecting it to be like Dan Aykroyd in Ghostbusters, yeah. where it's just hanging off his lip. You know? <laughs> yeah, like that. Oh, like that. Because that's the first time you see the shark, really. I mean, you see him attack Kittner, but you don't really see it. And, right. I mean, I, although right. I, I, I would say that Alex Kittner probably would have died soon, anyways, because I don't think humans are supposed to have that much blood inside of them. <laughs> it was like a fountain. Um, <laughs> and like you said, you know, with the mayor just saying no, like how many people on the beach actually witnessed it? Because they're all like, oh, my God, what's that? Look at that. Oh, my God. And you see the blood spewing up as the kid is flailing in the raft and the sharks, you know, the and the shark basically does that thing where he grabs him and rolls over. Yes. Like a, <laughs> almost a like an alligator. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's like, you know, how can you deny what happened there? Uh, it's probably a boat propeller. <laughs> it yeah. was no boat accident. <laughs> there was a barracuda. Yeah. You know, oh, that now that line they used in, um, what's the movie with Richard Dreyfus and Emilio Estevez where they were undercover cops? Stakeout. Yes. And they would, they were, you know, trying to kill some time because they're, they're staking out, you know, whoever they were supposed to. I forget the plot of the film, but, um, and they would just play word games and stuff back and forth just to pass the time. And Emilio Estevez, they, they were totally improvising the scene. And Emilio Estevez goes, um, and he, he says the line, um, this was no boating accident. And Richard Dreyfus didn't recognize it. And he's like, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what that's from. <laughs> That's funny. So, all right. So now we've got this. Yeah, <laughs> we've got this amazing film here. Um, one of the first thing that comes to mind when I was rewatching it was the scene where right before Alex Kittner is killed and Brody sitting on the seat, uh, sitting, uh, I'm sorry, on a beach chair. And the old guy comes up to him and he goes, that's some bad hat, Harry. Yep. <laughs> he's got this I don't even know what the heck was it like a wetsuit kind of hat or it's something a swim cap a swim cap and that Brian Singer took that line and that's the name of his production company yes bad hat Harry yeah <laughs> some bad hat Harry and that scene I always remembered being amazing for the crash zoom as Harry's talking to him Brody's kind of looking over his shoulder into the water and he sees what's happening to the Kittner boy and they Spielberg does the crash zoom on him where it it looks like the background is expanding out behind him, but it, he's getting closer to the camera. And that just works so well, especially with the music. It's it's just a, a perfect scene right there. Yeah, the swell of the string instruments. Uh, you know who does yes. that a lot is uh, Sam Raimi. And I believe yes. it is achieved by... You're either moving the camera forward as you're zooming out or you're zooming in as you're moving the camera backwards. Yes. Yep. I've done that in the past when I've on videos uh, and it's absolutely you're moving in and you're zooming back. You're zooming out with the with the aperture. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Like he does that a lot. Um, uh, the quick and the dead. They do a, a scene like that, which I really like. Yes. Uh, yeah. But I just I love that scene because it it. Uh, or that type of shot because it's like this dawning comprehension where everything is like you are alone. Everything else is kind of being pushed away and your attention is focused solely on what the character is looking at as well. And it's just this dawning realization of, Oh, what is going on? Right. And also another thing that Spielberg uses in this movie, which I thought was really cool is that he uses that lens where something in the foreground and something in the background are both in focus at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that like in the the scene right before Harry, where he's talking to the other guy and the guy's trying to tell him his problems about, I don't know, vandalism or something. And you can see him and in the background, you can see the ocean perfectly clear. And he, of course, Brody hears the screams and thinks something's wrong and it's just a girl and a, and a guy, pl- you know, horse playing. Yeah. Yeah, he's like dropping her in the water and stuff. Yeah, but the that that effect of having the foreground and the background be in focus at the same time, I think, is is used very well in this movie. Yeah, it's, Spielberg is a master of like getting the right shot at the right time. I think it's uh, you know the different angles and the different you know types of uh, you know stylistic choices that he uses. Um, I think it's done really well. 
I, I think so too. Like I said, <laughs> I like, this a, is this a good is, career for himself. This is as close to a perfect film as you can get. Like there's really no flaw. I mean, other than the, the Ben Gardner the tooth. tooth thing. But if you, <laughs> yeah. if you subscribe to the theory that, you know, it was planted and, uh, you know, Quint killed Ben Gardner, you know, Ben Gardner right. was really his only competition. He's yeah. the only you know is the only one that anybody knew for for folks who are unaware who Ben Gardner is he's the one who was out on his on the boat making fun of the other guys it's like oh once they uh, get to this point like they're gonna wish their fathers never met their mothers right <laughs> and you know and that's a scene one of the um the scenes that were cut from the film I, I I when I watched them on the DVD I was I was glad that none of them were used they really didn't need them except there was one scene where it expands on the chaos going on uh, with, you know, Ben Gardner and all those guys just getting out in their boats and they start crashing into each other and they get into fights and then they start shooting in each other's boats. And I thought that would have been kind of cool to keep in, but I could see why it really wasn't necessary to the plot, so you didn't really have to have that. But it it really, for me, watching it for the first time today, it, it enhanced my enjoyment of that scene. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, that's... <sighs> It's very funny, like all these guys are like, like, and you can hear somebody at one point four eight thousand, you know, what is it like whatever they were talking about, like whatever the the three thousand yeah, three thousand yeah. split four ways is what like. They... <laughs> <laughs> oh. And all right, so let's look at this one now. What about um Quint's little little buddy there, his his little Gilligan that hangs around with him that we never see the... again, like <laughs> right. he just disappears. <laughs> Well, and it's funny because there's another there's another cut scene where that guy actually does have a line of dialogue. And forgive me, I didn't actually look up the actor's name, but he um, he has one one or two lines of dialogue where he basically quits. He tells Quint, "I ain't going on that boat. I ain't going after that shark. You can't pay me enough to do it. I'm out of here." <laughs> smart, smart. Uh, he uh, he made the right career choice there. There are plenty of other boats in uh, Amity, which is essentially supposed to be Martha's Vineyard, uh, right? Even though it was right. shot in New York. But like, yeah, it's. No, I, th- I thought it was shot in Martha's Vineyard. See, I th- oh, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking like he's coming from New York. Like Amity's right, right, Amity's yeah. supposed to be New York. And you're thinking Amity Amityville, Long Island, which I've actually been there. I've seen the house. Yeah, I'm I'm confusing everything. And you know, and it's funny. Like I go to the Cape all the time. I've never been to Martha's Vineyard, and I've never been to any of these places. But it's like a two hour drive from me. And yeah, I feel like this is something I need to do. I think, and the, I'll have to look into this a little further. Our friend Joe Lemieux, the filmmaker, um, was was looking into doing a documentary because they had left behind a lot of the the props from Jaws in Martha's Vineyard. It's supposedly somewhere in the woods or in a swamp, like the orca, or at least what's left of it. Yeah, the orca is at the bottom of, of the things. ocean. <laughs> okay, well, something I forget, but he said there were a lot of uh, huge set pieces that they just left behind. Um, he was going to do a documentary about that, so I got to look into that and see if he's still doing it. There was something that just came out um, that was on Kickstarter, so something along those lines of like, you know, rebuilding the orca or finding the orca. Like they're they're remake they're rebuilding the orca and like, you know, trying to uh, you know kind of recreate Jaws, and of course orca, nice. you know, the uh, Jaws ripoff right. film from a few years. Uh, later right which was also a novel i believe too probably i haven't read that one yet that was with um 
Oh, what's his name? Who was in that? It was, uh, I can see his face. He played the chief he... in uh, Cuckoo's Nest. Yes, and he was the first, no. Well, yes, he was in that, but um, the main character in Orca was um, the guy, the first Dumbledore. Uh, uh, Richard Harris. Richard Harris, thank you. Yeah, not Michael Gamba. Right. Will no, Sampson he was is the his second name. Dumbledore. Oh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm looking it up now. Charlotte Rampling, who I forgot was in that. Bo Derek. Yep. Robert Carradine. It's a, sadly, nobody remembers that film. <laughs> I remember watching it, and I was like, "Ooh, this is kind of cool." And I was like, "Oh, this is this is stupid." Yeah, it, it makes you think of that other one with the Lee Marvin, where he's fighting the white buffalo. That was just like, what are they doing here? <laughs> or the uh, the 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 Italian remake. I think it was it was an Italian remake. It was called uh, The Last Shark. Came out in 1981, and it was essentially a shot for shot remake of Jaws with James Franciscus in like the Quint yes. role. I saw that in the movies. It was under the title Great White. Yeah, Great White and, and The Last Shark. Yeah, yeah, there's. Yeah, I saw that with my parents, and I remember. I remember even at age eleven thinking it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, whatever age you're at, it's awful. Yeah. Like I think I watched it free on YouTube. You know, a few years ago. Right. Right. Now, one of the things I wanted to mention too, or I wanted to talk about, was um, the scene where they're looking at the uh, Brody's looking through the books, and he's looking at all the pictures of the sharks. And I remember after Jaws. You know, because everybody was into sharks at that point after that movie. And being in the school library, and I found a bunch of books, like Time Life books or something, about sharks, and they had those exact pictures. Yeah. Which was cool. I remember going, oh, I saw this in the movie, and I saw this in the movie. The uh, the one of uh, that Lorraine Gary looks at when the kids are in the boat tied to the dock. Yeah. And she sees the shark coming up uh, and attacking the two guys in the boat. Right, and putting a hole in it. I had a book with that in it. That was an artist's depiction of a shark attack off the coast of Nova Scotia, which is way cold water for a shark to be in, especially, you know, right. I think it was in the, oh, like a hundred years ago. Like, it was a long wow. time ago, and, like, that was before all the uh, global warming and whatnot uh, really heated things up and melted the ice caps and, you know, extended summer and all that. So like it was a it was a strange strange uh, an aberration is the only way I could describe it like sharks generally don't go into that cold of water like right. great whites prefer the cooler water but like they'll you'll find them in you know warmer water like they're they're very adaptable uh, and like that's one of the things that they say in Jaws four like oh they don't like the warm water like they don't they won't come down here and it's like oh yeah well this one does and it. Uh, makes dinosaur sounds so and eats right. and eats planes. <laughs> well, his 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 mom ate helicopters. So. Yeah, I mean, it runs and it's like <laughs> I have a more sophisticated palate. I eat seaplanes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love that scene though with um, Ellen and, and Martin because he's he realizes that uh, Michael's in the boat. And he's yelling at him to get. He's just sitting there, and of course, um, Sean is sitting on the dock, you know, hollering back, you know, can I, can I just go in the boat? Well, he won't let me in the boat. And and Brody's yelling out the window, going, get out of the boat, get out of the boat. She's like, come on, it's his birthday present, you know, give him a break. And then she looks at the at the book, and she sees that picture. And she's like, screaming out the window, get out of the boat. Listen to your father. Yeah, he's like, I don't yeah. want him on the ocean. They're not on the ocean. <laughs> like, it's like he's technically, in a boat. yes. 
Uh, I don't think he'll ever go in the water after what happened yesterday. Yeah, right. Oh, man. We got to do... I would love to have a movie marathon with a bunch of people where we play movies that we've seen a zillion times and we turn the volume down and we all just do the dialogue through the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be <laughs> that fun. That would be fun. So uh, one of the other scenes, too, that I think, personally, I thought this was the scariest scene in the movie. I mean, this is a scary movie. You know, it's a horror movie. Adventure movie as well. But... um the 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 holiday roast pier scene where the two guys are on the, the little pier and they hook the holiday roast in into the hook and throw it in the water and then uh the shark takes it and runs and takes a part of the pier with it and then you see the pier as it's floating away turns around and comes back because one of the guys had fallen in the water that to me even watching it this time around the, the hair on my arm stood up because that, that was just you know terrifying Take my word for it. Don't look back. Yeah. <laughs> swim, Charlie, swim. Oh, that's such a fun scene. And then at the end, the, the guy goes, can we go home now? Yeah. <laughs> so let's see. Um, oh, now one of the scenes that I loved was where Brody Hooper and the mayor are standing in front of the, the billboard. And someone had taken some paint and they painted a, a shark fin. Like the billboard is... It's like suntan lotion or something. Oh no, it was a welcome to Amityville, and it's a lady laying in her bikini on a like a floaty, and someone painted in a shark fin coming up out of the water behind her, and and a word balloon of her screaming. And I just love the composition of that scene where the camera is is an up angle looking up at them, almost like a stage play. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely uh, an interesting take. Like I always looked at it as like. It's like they're struggling uphill, trying to convince Vaughn that there's an issue. That's a great way of looking at it. I hadn't thought of that before. And I, I just love when Hooper says to him, you know, he was look at that, the proportions of that fin. He goes, that's probably what it's like. You know, that's not the exact line. Those dimensions are correct. Something those like that. dimensions are correct, yeah. <laughs> you don't really see Spielberg doing a shot like that in any uh, in the rest of the movie. So I I wonder if it was just so they could frame in the guy in the background that had climbed up to the billboard to try and, you know, get rid of the graffiti. It might have been. I mean, it's definitely, uh, it definitely shows off the pomposity of Larry Vaughn. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name in the National Geographic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he just walks away. <laughs> I'm not going to, this man's lining up to be a hot lunch. And the, <laughs> and just the look on Hooper's face when when Vaughn says that and walks away, it's just like he's like, really? Did he actually just say that? Yeah, it's like I I, I can't do. It. I got I gotta go. I'll see you later. <laughs> so then we've got a uh, um a good scare where you think it's the shark, but it turns out to be a couple of kids with a cardboard fin, you know, playing a prank. Which I could see happening in real life. He you know, made me do nobody it. taking it seriously. You know what I mean? I could see oh, yeah. nobody taking it seriously and, and a couple of kids playing trying to do a prank like that. Um, then, of course, the shark goes into the pond, which is sort of... Uh, how would you describe the pond? Kind of like a little bay area where, like, you know, the, it's kind of like a... Like, like an inlet? Yeah, like you don't have all the waves because there's enough uh, enough of a sandbar to kind of trap the water there in high tide. So, like, that's where, like, the right. younger kids will go or, like, the people who want to kind of 
get away from like the the big ocean waves because there's there's beaches like that at cape cod like if you go to nosset beach on one side of the arm like you get the big heavy waves that are really rolling in and like you know slamming down and the water's always colder on that side but if you go to the opposite side to skakit beach which is kind of on the inside of the arm uh it's you know nosset has the 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 full ocean behind it and this has uh skakit has uh you know the the arm you know the 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 land mass in between it you know so obviously there's if you're familiar with the shape of massachusetts it's kind of in like that yeah that bold dip now um, about halfway down the the arm and uh you know the the water's always a little warmer the waves are a little calmer like you can walk out you know up to your waist and you're you're fine like on the on the nosset side like the waves will knock you down and bash you against you know rocks like so i can understand you know like this little pond bay area it's like okay this is a little nicer you know it's not as uh not as crowded because it just doesn't uh doesn't get the same uh attention Hmm. because it's calmer and nicer you know, I have to say, not to get too far off topic here, but um, I grew up north of Boston in Stoneham, and I lived in Saugus for quite a few years before coming to Maine about five years ago. But um, our playground was always the North Shore. It was always, you know, uh, uh, Salisbury and Hampton mm-hmm. and all that. And I, I'd been to the Cape a few times. I had not an uncle that lived there, and I'd been to their beaches. And I never, growing up, I never cared for the Cape Cod beaches because I always felt they were full of rocks and shells. Yeah, Nosset is absolutely that side. Like... We would like, we would go out, you know, my brothers and I and my dad, we would go out to ride the waves in, you know, where you wait for the wave to come in, you jump up and you let the wave carry you in and kind of deposit you on the right, sand. Yeah. Um, at Nosset, there was always like this little bit of a depression and that's where all the rocks were. Like, and it would go uh-huh. for about, I mean, uh, my estimation's probably off because like it was so hard to walk out there. And this is before, like, all those, like, rubber-soled water shoes were everywhere. And we'd, we'd try to walk right. out, and there was, uh, I'd say, twenty, maybe 10 feet of rocks. But, like, I remembered it as being, like, hundreds of feet because it hurt so much to walk out there uh, in order to get, like, a good yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, at yeah. Skakit Beach, it was never like that. Uh, I mean, the waves weren't exactly something that were going to carry you in there, but also there was no riptide that was going to suck you out into the ocean. Right. So there were pluses. Uh- <laughs> yeah. So Salisbury, very sandy beach, but yeah, it has, it has those riptides. Yeah. So anyways, um, so uh, Brody had told his son to, you know, take the boat. He wants, he's got his new boat. He got it for his birthday. He wants to try it out. So Brody's like, all right, just go in the pond, do it for the old man. Cause he says, you know, the pond's for old women. Yeah. Do it for the old man. So of course, um, Michael and his friends are sitting in the boat and they're, they're doing something. They're like tying knots or something. And which I think is a cool scene. I almost wonder if that dialogue was uh, improvised because they, it just, they're talking over each other. It's not really specific to the plot. And I, I got the impression that they would just, the, the direct, uh, Spielberg just said, you know, here, go at it. Just argue amongst yourselves and, be done with it because I always felt that scene was very realistic. That's just how kids are. Yeah, no, I think that's a hundred percent accurate. I think that you know they, 
you know, just kind of talk about stuff that's going on, like what they're going to have for lunch and, you know, you know, whatever, like they could be talking about anything. Right. And they were, well, they were yelling at Michael to, to do tie the knot or something. He's like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. So there's this other guy in a boat nearby. And I, at, for years, I always wondered who the heck is this guy that's talking to them. But then when I watched it today, I realized that even though I still don't know who he is, they were, there was something specific because he, he hollered, something over to them like you know hurry up and get such and such done i didn't quite hear what he said and i'm like all right so they know this guy he's not just some weirdo because he seems like kind of a weirdo in the boat and um he gets knocked over by the shark and gets his leg bitten off and the leg floats to the bottom now that scene at age five when i'm sitting in the theater my mother covers my eyes and of course her pinky finger was extended out so my i could still see out of one of my eyes. She hadn't actually covered my eyes. And I saw the leg coming down and I clamped both my hands over her hand, covering both my eyes. Because it was just terrifying. Yeah, it's uh it's a it's a it's a really cool scene and like that, you know, really is what sets off the uh you know, what's his name? Um Brody heading yeah. out and going after going after the shark and what's cool is they they do a really good fake out um in, in that scene because you saw the leg hit the bottom brody's scrambling to get the sun um his friends are all kind of because the, now the kid was in the water the shark wrote swam past him because we saw that from the camera point of view that it went right past him and they're the friends are pulling him into shore brody runs over grabs him they're pulling him in and you're not seeing his legs for a second and it, I think it implants the thought in your mind, ooh, did he lose a leg too? Yeah. Because we saw the leg get off. We, we saw the shark go past him, or we know it went past him. And then, then they fake you out, and they just pull him to shore, and he's he's fine. He's just in yeah. shock. But I thought that was brilliant. There's a scene like that in the book, but it's not as, it's not as kid. It's just some random, random people. And I think uh, having the kid, uh, having it be his kid um, definitely definitely heightens that uh that emotional impact um i think uh, we kind of talked about roy scheider but his his portrayal of of brody is there are so many scenes where he's hilarious you know and the poor character he's this landlubber city boy afraid of the water you know um he, he goes out in the boat with quint and hooper and he's got the sunblock on his nose and he's throwing the chum in the water and he's got a cloth on his shoulder that he keeps putting old spice in and breathing it in because the chum smells so bad <laughs> he's just such a, a city boy mm-hmm. i just love that it's especially i just remember laughing at one of my you know later viewings after first seeing it with with the sunblock on his nose it's like i've seen people do that but i always wonder you know, who really does that <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely somebody that's uh not accustomed to being out on the water right exactly so they go out in the boat or they're on the boat and um i just love the scene where they've got the fishing rod brody's chum in the water and there's a little click and quint notices the the line moved just a little bit and he carefully without saying anything he's sort of you know nibbling on a cracker pops it in his pocket very carefully straps himself to the chair takes the the fishing rod off of the stand that it's in and puts it on 
one that's under the chair, braces his feet, hooks himself to the fishing rod, and just such a masterfully done scene. And he doesn't he doesn't make a noise. He doesn't say, hey, there's the shark, and alert everybody. He just does it very subtly without saying anything. And, oh, Brody was trying to tie knots. That's what it was because Quint had been teaching him. And he, Brody finally gets it. He's like, yay, and then all of a sudden, zoom, the reel goes out. Yeah, the and, thing just zooms out, yeah. And I just love that. Yeah, I, I loved that part because it's just, it's ratcheting up the tension without... Um, well, it's subtle, uh, not overt. Yeah, it's it's just like the slowest little tick. It's almost like a countdown of a clock. Right. Yeah. Can he quietly get all get all his gear in order before the line goes? Yeah. He's just he's getting everything ready. But it's like you know, he I was expecting him the first time I saw that to get yanked into the water and He's going to be zipping around. Like, if it was a parody, he'd have been <laughs> launched into the water and he'd be like water skiing behind the thing. <laughs> that only happens to Nordberg. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's again another masterful scene by, by Spielberg. And then, of course, you know, the, this, this is where Quint starts to, starts to go over the deep end because the line breaks. And like you said before, all his tricks of the trade aren't working with this creature. And this is the first one where this line snaps. I don't think that's ever happened to him. I think he even says that. And it, yeah, because uh, Hooper's like, it's not a shark. It's probably a marlin. And he's like, you ever seen a marlin bite through piano wire? Right. <laughs> like, don't ever tell me my business again. And then, and then Hooper's making faces behind his back. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> Which he's wearing those nasty-ass gloves, and he puts the pinky fingers in into his mouth so he can stretch his mouth and stick his tongue out. And I was like... I just remember, while it was funny, being grossed out by that. I'm like, ew, what have you been doing with those gloves? And now you're sticking them in your mouth? And and then Hooper, it's interesting because, um, I, again, I don't know if this was improvised or if it was in the script, but he uh, he goes up to pilot the boat and and Quint's shouting orders at him and he goes, aye, aye, sir, yar, Jim boy, which is a, a Treasure Island reference. And then he does a W.C. Fields reference when he goes, I don't have to take this abuse for much longer. Yeah. It's it's a lot of fun because you could tell how frustrated he was getting with Quint. I mean, they're both the same. Right. Like, I know my stuff. No, I know my stuff. It's like, well, you guys both know your stuff. Right. You don't, you know, like there's no, you don't have to disconnect here. And Quint didn't even want anyone on the boat to begin with, which I think he would have been a goner, you know, pretty sooner rather than later if it was just him. As, as good a fisherman as he was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think it would have mattered one way or the other. Like, you could have had three boats out there, and maybe that would have made a difference. Yeah, and it's just, and you know what, too, it's also old school, old school versus new school, where yeah, Quint's got this old fashioned way of doing things that's always worked, and now it's not working, so he has to acquiesce to Hooper, say, all right, let's try your your fancy, you know, new school stuff, and um, the scene where where Hooper is telling Brody to go way, way out to the tip, tippy front of the boat so he can get a picture because he wants, I need you in the foreground because I want some scale. And Brody goes, foreground yeah. my ass. <laughs> so he feels like he's going to fall in or something's going to happen or the shark's going to jump up and get him. I mean, who knows what's going through the poor guy's mind. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely a, a gentleman who uh, does not like being on the ocean. Right. <laughs> 
So then we get this tale of the ocean that was really uh, actually very chilling when the, everything's quieted down. It's nighttime now and Quint starts to discuss or not to discuss, but he starts to t- relate the story of the Indianapolis in World War yeah. Two. And I read that and I had heard a long time ago that that actual monologue was written by John Sale, but I read more recently it was a guy named Howard Sackler who wrote it. So I don't know which to believe, but I, I did definitely heard that they needed some kind of st- script doctor for that scene and they had someone come in. Do you know anything about that? Um, I've heard that it's been written by multiple people. I've heard that, you know, Robert Shaw improvised some of it. Uh, you know, I've heard I've heard varying reports, um, and I think there's probably a little bit of truth to all of them. Now, you know, a, I think I'll, no, go ahead. I was going to say a lot of it kind of uh, overlaps, and and the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, probably. I'm sure that happens often in movies, when you know, especially someone like Spielberg. I mean, this was he was he's quoted as saying that um, he was stupid when he made this movie. He was courageous. He was courageous but stupid. Because he felt like he didn't know a whole heck of a lot of what he was doing. So I would imagine he turned to someone with this scene, especially since it was kind of an important scene to the film, to to get someone really, really good to come in and just write that one monologue. Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. And I think that sets the stage because, you know, you know how like when you're making a movie or when you're watching a movie, the implied things, and we'll talk about the implied shark in a little bit, are scarier sometimes than when you see things and when he relates that story it's so horrifying and it really happened that i think that's sort of a uh, sort of a like a gut punch to the audience to wake up and go you know these guys are in danger and it makes it makes the audience relate to it more in a real world kind of way at least in my opinion no i think you're i think you're right um because you can kind of put yourself in that situation where you don't know what's going on they don't know what's going on um and the fact that this is, you know, again, based on actual events. Um, Which they did I, make I a movie that's... about that with Nicolas Cage, I think, a few years ago, although I haven't seen it. Yeah, uh, just Indianapolis, I think, is what it's called. Yeah. So, and getting to the implied shark, um, I guess one of the issues they had was they, they had, what, like two or three mechanical sharks? And they had immense problems with them because putting a machine in salt water doesn't always work. unless it's tried and true and so it forced Spielberg to kind of um, not show the shark which he wanted to show it a lot more and I think all the scenes that we we saw like with the pier the two guys and the the roast on the pier the and that's turning in the water or the two barrels when the two barrels get on the shark uh, because Quint has harpooned them into him and those Mm -hmm. turn I think those are more effective than seeing the shark itself well, I also think that it, um, I always say this when it comes to horror films, uh, regardless of the, the, you know, subject matter within them, the, uh, the, the, uh, imagining of what the creature is, is always scarier than once it's, you know, here we go. This is what it is. This is what, this is the thing that's scaring everyone. This is the thing causing all the problems. Right. You know, once you reveal what it is, you're either going to scare people or you're not. Yeah, absolutely. And leaving things, I think even Hitchcock was the one who who said, you know, leaving things up to the imagination of the audience is far, far more effective sometimes. Now, one thing I noticed, and I'm trying to think, 
I was actually the, uh, thinking about this earlier. When I first noticed this, now, I, like I said, I had seen the movie in the theater, so I was very familiar with the theatrical release and then the, the television, they showed it on TV and the networks and then it went to cable and all that. Um, but I noticed something and probably 15 years ago, I was watching a version of Jaws. I don't recall which one it was. It may have been the 30th anniversary. I'm not sure. And I noticed a couple of lines of dialogue that, I remember going, no, it's either a Mandela effect or they weren't in the original film because there was two lines. I, where, did, where were they? I wrote them down here. Oh, yeah. When uh, Quint is aiming the harpoon for the first time at the shock, Brody's going, kill it, Quint, kill it. And that was a line that I remember going, wait, that was never in the original. I don't, when I first saw it. Do you remember? I do remember that. Okay. And then at the end... When the boat's sinking, now the shark has killed Quint. You know, uh, Hooper's gone in the shark cage. He's managed to get away and hide. The boat's going down. It's up to Brody. Shark happened to swallow the, the, the oxygen tank that Brody shoved into his mouth. Or he didn't really swallow it. It's sticking out of his mouth. Brody's climbing up the mast as the boat's going down. He's got the rifle. Probably only a few bullets left. And he's, he's aiming at it. And in the original version that I saw, I swear to you, he the only thing he says is smile you son of a bitch and then you know blows him up but this watching it this time around reminded me that there's extra lines in there where he's going show me the tank show me the tank i don't like i said i didn't notice that until 15 years ago that i think they added that in or something because people didn't understand what he was trying to do i think um i'm trying to remember but i do remember like him muttering stuff under his breath like even he was going crazy yeah i mean maybe it was something they just cranked the volume up on it's entirely possible okay pat we have talked way too long about this movie but it's clear the reason is that it's just such a huge favorite of both you and i yeah i was gonna say there's no there's no uh there's no way we talked way too long about it because it's just a phenomenal film (laughs) you can never talk enough about jaws exactly one last thing I just wanted to touch on was John Williams's amazing score for this movie. What are your thoughts? I liked it. Uh, it's so iconic as so many of his scores are. Uh, he definitely has a style. Um, like when you start to hear something like, oh, it's, oh, I know that's Danny Elfman or I know that's, you know, uh, you know, James Newton Howard. Uh, he definitely has a very specific style when he is, um, you know, composing and, you know, the, the, you know, the different instruments that he uses, like you can definitely tell that it's a John Williams composition. You know, there's a lot of similarities between say the Superman theme and star Wars. You know, there's a lot of uh, overlap, you know, it's almost like a signature. Um, You know, it's, I love this. And I remember when I watched creature from the black lagoon for the first time, and we, we talked about this a little earlier. um, There were some, shades of creature from the black lagoon theme which obviously john williams did not do as it was you know 45 years or so before this movie came out um (laughs) but there was there's some shades of it like the you know the uh the iconic uh bass you know the like that's part of um the uh the 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 overall creature from the black lagoon theme like it's 
it's subtle, but again, like we were talking about earlier, it's, you know, like an homage, you know, it's like, this is something that was important to me, you know, where we compared Spielberg's uh, take on this to his take on Duel, uh, which is a Richard Matheson uh, story. We did not touch on that. Right. Um, it's almost like the same thing, like Williams did the same thing as, you know, uh, we're comparing this to another film about an underwater monster that has, you know, stalked a community and a boat, and there's a confrontation between the creature that, you know, results in fire and explosions. and uh, Very well done, I, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you know it's funny. I, lately, I've been listening to John Williams's um, sc- score for the original Lost in Space TV series, and I just love it. I mean, I've I've listened to it in the past. I own the CD and stuff, and it's just his music is so good; it's unbelievable. Yeah, he's very talented. He's uh, he's a great, great uh, uh, composer. Uh, and again, like his stuff is so iconic. Like, when you hear him, like, you know that, you know, like, okay, this is definitely John Williams. Like, there's just that, it's like a signature, you know, like, you're watching a movie, and like, okay, this is a Tarantino movie, or this is a Scorsese film. You know, you can, you can tell because the great creators have that signature style. Like, I could walk by a a Picasso and be like, that's a Picasso. Right. And he does the same thing with sound and it's it's just uh so masterfully done absolutely one of the scenes that uh brought the score into my attention when i was re-watching this film this morning was when we first see the shark swimming sort of parallel to the orca and you can see how big it is compared to the orca and he's just got this amazing harp music just strumming as it's going by and it's just it's within the music so it's like dun 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 as it goes by and then dun 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 again and it's just it's incredible because he's it's almost like um the old looney tunes where they would make the music based on what was happening in the cartoon yeah like the, the classic xylophone playing while a skeleton is running across the you know, you know exactly or, yeah. or, you know, the music's going with the character's footsteps, you know, dun, 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 and then the character stops. The music stops, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Like they're sneaking up on someone and it stops, and then they sneak up a couple more and there's a couple more. Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. And my other um, thing that I thought of, and I had heard this years ago, was I guess the, the piece of music, when it's playing, when you're seeing, you know, activity going on at the beach or in the harbor, I guess he won an award for that because it sounded very New England. Hmm. And it, it really does. You know, when you look at it, you think of home <laughs> or when you listen yeah. to it, I should say. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. And, you know, like that's the that's the thing, like, you know, his music is able to you know evoke so many different moods and emotions from you, like especially the uh, you know, you have this see uh, the, the, the music where all the boats are all taking off. You know, and they're all like on their mission. It's very similar to when the uh, the orca is first getting out, right? You know, like you were talking about that music. It's slightly different and gives a little bit more of. Uh, it's a little more serious, you know, like to kind of underscore 
the uh, the severity of the situation that they're facing. Like, this isn't a bunch of yahoos. This is three people who know what they're doing. Well, two people and Brody who know what they're doing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly what you're talking about, I, and I'm right there with you. And it's just amazing when you hear those those, those first two notes. It just evokes a visceral reaction. <laughs> and it's, they're, they're, um, they're at a frequency where it will resonate physically with you. Like there's a, um, there's a movie called Irreversible where they have these sounds that are playing, but they are on such a low register that you don't know that they're there. Huh. But it, uh, these, these, uh, tones cause anxiety. So like you're, you're getting anxious and you're, you're uncomfortable, but you're not quite sure why, because you're hearing it, but you're not aware that you're hearing it. And I think the deep bass of the uh, the tones that you hear in Jaws, which is why if you're going to watch us, you know, you watch it on a nice big screen and you have that, you know, like a sound bar or speakers or something, right. you're able to crank that bass up. Like it really like reverberates in your bones and you're just like, oh, like it feels, uh, it's almost like an, an extra, uh, I have to be careful how I say this because it's not an extra sensory perception because it's <laughs> it's literally extra sensory perception. Like you're getting more than just hearing the uh, the the music and seeing the footage. You are feeling it, right? So I don't mean like you're going to see into the future. I mean like you do. You've seen the movie a million times. You know that the sharks <laughs> coming when that comes out. But like you get that extra uh, sensory reaction. It's like, right. Or extra aural, A-U-R-A-L, you know? Yes. Yes. Oral stimulation. There you go. <laughs> Not oral <laughs> stimulation. <laughs> okay. Right. So, Pat, why don't you give um, give the audience your final thoughts on the movie Jaws? Um, this is one of the greatest films ever put to, uh, ever put to celluloid. Um, it's got one of the best performances um, you know, and, and, and uh, Robert Shaw, I mean, that USS Indianapolis speech is probably the greatest movie monologue of all time. Um, this film, you know, because it had the problems that it had, if the shark had worked from the beginning, if everything went as it was supposed to have gone, this would not have been as good a film as it turned out to be. The fact that the monster was missing for most of it and Spielberg was able to use that to his advantage uh, made this film uh, what it was. I agree. And the last thing I want to point out about this, uh, because I already talked about all the shark stuff, you know, I mentioned all that at the beginning, my feelings on, on, you know, how sharks are perceived. Right. Um, And I'm sure you're aware of this because I know you've delved into the movie a thousand times yourself. The shooting star that you see streak across the sky above the orca was an actual shooting star. Yes. That uh, Spielberg was able to catch, like, just happened to be, like, another one of those, like, very lucky coincidences. Yeah. However, Spielberg has now, like, that's one of his signatures. He will digitally put shooting stars into <laughs> other films. Um, not quite the same thing. It's like, yeah. oh, I found a four-leaf clover, and it's like, well, I found two 
three leaf clovers and I just pulled one of the leaves off and glued it to the second one. Like not quite the same thing. Right. They were definitely blessed when they made this movie. And it's funny because Spielberg had said when they made um, Indiana Jones and the last crusade, they were, they were blessed on that set in particular at the end when they're all riding off into the sunset and they just had an amazing sunset, a real sunset for them to ride off into. Yeah, I have, a, I have a friend of mine who did a movie called Karate Kill, and they were trying to do, it was an independent film, and it was the last shot of the film, and it had been raining and raining and raining and raining, and they had this nice drone shot that they were going to do. And at the very last second, for like five minutes, the clouds cleared, the sky opened up, and they were able to get their drone shot, where it just takes off and just like takes this wider and wider view of the ground beneath it. That... They couldn't have done five minutes earlier and they couldn't have done five minutes later. Like they had this five minute window and they're like, do it now. And they got a gorgeous shot. Uh, It's that same type of thing, like that movie magic that you don't think about this stuff until you, you know, you hear these behind the scenes stories. And again, for Jaws to work the way it did when, you know, Robert Shaw and and Richard Dreyfuss hated each other. Uh, that's right it was miserable for everybody like the name of the shark is bruce because it's named after spielberg's lawyer like because (laughs) they they went over budget they couldn't like you were saying earlier they had to film the ben gardner scene in spielberg's pool so they had to like make his like dump all this stuff into his pool and trash his his pool at his house like (laughs) all these things went wrong but the movie is so perfect like right. there's nothing wrong with it um, except for the it's tooth. a master class yeah except for the tooth but you know again <laughs> it all depends on your uh on your point of view you know if that was if that was quint putting that there you know blame the shark you know he sneaks on the boat blows it up burns it down you know chops off ben gardner's head blames it on the shark the perfect crime right <laughs> So now, final question, would you, it's kind of a double question, would you recommend this to a younger audience, or, um, and would they find it scary, or is it, or is so much of it in the pop culture that the movie's ruined for them? Um, I would say that absolutely the Ben Gardner head scene would uh, scare a younger kid, uh, you know, 10, 10 and, and younger. Um, I would show this to a younger audience. Um, especially, you know, me, I mean, I'm a shark person. Like I love everything about sharks. Like there's so much about them that I, that I, uh, find just fascinating. Um, right. It's, uh, it's something that I would, I might kind of shy them away from seeing some of the bloody, like Alex Kittner and Quint, but everything else you can watch, like kids can watch that. It's like, yeah, it might be a little scary, like, you know, seeing the shark and, watching it swim around or, or watching the camera move around, you know, from the shark's point of view. But, um, but like yeah, for oh, teenagers who are just so jaded these days because they've seen everything in, in a lot I of the modern surprise, films. Do you think, think Jaws is still kids. effective? Yeah. Because you know, this doesn't rely on your typical jump scares. It doesn't rely on the stuff that kids are used to seeing that, that cookie cutter, like, you know, I was talking about earlier with the music swelling and then like, oh, it's right behind me. You know, like I look down the hallway, but it's not there. But as soon as I turn around, I got grabbed. Um, you know, there's none of that. Like when Ben Gardner's head comes out of that boat, it's totally unexpected. You do not think that you are going to see a head come right. out of that. 
you know, um, that to me, that would be an, an effective scare. Yes. Does the shark look fake? Absolutely. Because it is like, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, uh, the shark itself isn't scary, but, uh, I did want to, I just thought of one more thing, uh, that we didn't touch on Sure. when the orca sank, yep. all of the film was on it. They had to dive in the water and like retrieve the film. Like they thought that they were going to lose the entire movie. I heard because that. All of that stuff was on the orca. I heard that. Yep. But they managed to what send it off to California and, and the guys there fixed it. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, think about it. If that was a digital camera, forget it. That stuff's gone. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, film, like film is physical. It. So it, it, so you get it wet. Oh, big deal. You know? And uh, recently, Greg Nicotero restored the original shark. I think within the last year or so. Wow! In a studio in L.A., they restored the original shark. Uh, it looks a little different, but uh, I like it. I have to say, personally, and I, you know, like I said, I've watched this movie probably well over a hundred times in my life. I don't, I don't really ever feel that I thought the shark looked fake. I, I guess every time I watched it, I just accepted that that was the shark, and I bought into it without really thinking twice about it. I'll tell you when the shark looks fake. When it comes out of the water, and its jaws moving, and like you can tell it was only supposed to open its mouth once, and it kind of wobbles a little bit, like the lower jaw. Oh, um, right. That looks fake. And when it jumps onto the boat at the end and it's like kind of waving its head back and forth and you can tell it's like on a, like a hydraulic shift. Yeah. Like, yes. Um, but some of the other times when it's getting Alex, uh, looks pretty good. Um, you know, other times when it's going by the boat, I like that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's well done. Like they had, I think they had three of them total, like various body sizes. Uh, when it busts into the boat and, you know, Brody uh, shoves the air can into his mouth. Yep. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Pat, why don't you give us your contact info? Because last episode, I neglected to ask you that. So let the audience know where they can find you online. Uh, you can find me uh, on Facebook. Um, I'm, I'm generally uh, very active on the on the uh, Throwdown Thursday Facebook group. I'm also I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Patrick Rahal, R-A-A-J-L-L. Um, and I know you pronounced my name different earlier. doesn't matter. Both I apologize. Are <laughs> no, 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 no. Both are acceptable. Okay. Uh, like, I pronounce it Rahal. My brother pronounces it Rahal. My mom pronounces it Rahal. My dad pronounces it Rahal. So there's there's not a wrong way. Whatever emphasis you want to put, that's fine. There's there's not a wrong way. That's why I just go by uh, Rigor. It's so much easier. Yeah. 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 It's... Um, but yeah, you can uh, find me there. Um, I'm always posting articles, and, and uh, you can find our latest episodes on throwdownthursdaypodcast.com. Uh, I post stuff there. Uh, my wife Ashes posts stuff there. Hopefully my brothers are going to start doing stuff because I also do the Loudest Sports Show, which you can find uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, we're going to have videos on YouTube because we're starting to do that Um we record our, ourselves on video and audio, and then we post the videos to YouTube so folks can watch uh, our fun and exciting interactions. Nice. Um, and that is under, everything we do is under the Throwdown Thursday umbrella. 
So if okay. you go to Throwdown Thursday podcast on YouTube, you'll find all that. And I, I post some uh, some random video game stuff here and there. Um, it's 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 fun. I post little video game clips that are only a few seconds long. Whenever there's a a crazy glitch, I think I just did one for uh, the Mad Max video game where I got out of the car and closed the door and the car flew across the screen, which is generally not the way physics work. <laughs> it was just the weirdest thing. It's like he gets out of the car, closes the door, and the car launches 40 feet to the left. I'm like, huh, I'm going to post that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, my son has one about like a pirate ship that just went flying through the air for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some weird, weird stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's it's weird. Excellent, excellent. Oh. Well, thank you for joining us today, and um, let's have you on the show again. We got to talk about some a lot of cool stuff that people probably missed out on. Oh yeah, I'd love to. I love talking movies. All right, thanks a lot, Pat. Take All care. Right, take care. Well, we hope you enjoyed this special edition episode of Then Is Now called 13 Days of Hallotober. If you want to chime in on today's show, please send us an email at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And you can also check out our website, havenpodcasts.com. And we have another show called The East Meets the West, where we discuss spaghetti westerns and Shaw Brothers movies. So we hope you check that show out as well. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes so that more people can find us and spread the word about Then Is Now. Join us again next episode.